Thank you, Nick. Um, yeah, it all does love praying for the first responders. It really does. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, hope you're all well. Hope you've all had a had a good week. Um, my my sermon's going to be slightly different this week. Uh, it's been a little bit busy. I didn't really didn't know till earlier in the week that I was going to be preaching. Uh, so normally I have it typed out in front of me, um, and I fundamentally read. Um, but today it's done with. Um, actual handwritten notes. Uh, the problem with that is I can't read my handwriting. I've tried my best. I've tried my best to write this really neatly, but as we get about two thirds in, it just becomes a scribble and I have to really struggle to remember what God told me to say. Um, so if it's good, that's from God. If it's bad, that's my handwriting and I apologize most sincerely. Um, but thank you, uh, for, for reading that passage. Um, it's interesting, when I was first a Christian, I went to a church near my parents and I got involved with the Sunday school. Um, and there was two brothers there, Sam and Gareth, um, and lovely boys. And both Sam and Gareth now are um, ordained ministers in the in the Church of England. Uh, sorry, Church in Wales, very different things. Um, they both are Anglican ministers. Um, and yesterday, Sam shared on his um, social media a service from his his mission area that's what they call them these days instead of deaneries uh, and it was a seven minute service and they had this this particular passage um, and there was a, a young girl was reading and it was beautiful to hear I, I, I really had to encourage Naomi and Edward to to read those prayers because I think it's important to hear the voices of of young people you know we need to encourage them to, to do that and it was it was nice for Sam to share that and to hear um, the young girl reading his and to to hear his insight and it's such a a wonderful passage so I'll, I'll dive straight in and it starts off Jesus has just come back across the Sea of Galilee he'd been out to the other side to the Gentile side and he'd been um, casting out demons and doing all sorts of healings and so on over that side so he's come back over to the Jewish side and he's met by a man called Jairus and Jairus is in the the words of Mark a ruler of the synagogue now this means that basically um, he's the elder or almost like a pastor, you know, he manages the business affairs of the synagogue and to a certain extent, he manages the spiritual affairs of the synagogue. He's the one who runs it all. He sets up the services. I imagine he wrote the rota, you know, he sent the first century equivalent of emails about six times saying, I've asked you for your dates. Where are your dates? What can you do? And all that, that sort of stuff. And what's interesting here is that sometimes we get the impression in the gospels that that Jesus was opposed by all the religious leaders. We read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we have this impression that Jesus is opposed by all the religious leaders of the time. But no, he wasn't. Here we have a very important religious leader, one of the rulers of the synagogue, seeking out Jesus. He doesn't wait for him to come to his town. He goes out and he seeks him out. He went, goes looking for Jesus because he is absolutely desperate. He must have heard of Jesus. He would have known that... Um, of what Jesus was doing. He would have heard of the miracles. He'd have seen some of this stuff. And when he gets there, this super important, highly religious man falls on his feet and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs him and he says, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her. I struggle to imagine what that would be like. When I start thinking of something bad happening to Naomi or something bad happening to Idwell, okay, 
uh, and all of you who you know you can you can understand it it's so so difficult I, he must have been utterly utterly desperate but he has confidence and he has faith he has faith that jesus can do it come and lay your hands on her and she will be healed even in his desperation he knows that if he goes to jesus and he speaks to jesus and he convinces jesus that he needs to come and help he will help he will lay his hands on the daughter and she will be well it's similar to the story in luke chapter 7 where the roman centurion comes but slightly different in as much as he says well you can just speak now and she'll be healed you know jairus is a little bit more practical and and on the thing you no know, you have to come now you know and i'm sure there's a whole sermon looking at the difference between those two i don't want to focus on that it's just that we need to understand how desperate he was and jesus says to jairus of course I'm on my way. Let's go. And Jairus then feels his relief and they start to go, but they get stopped. There's a huge crowd. They've seen this important man come in and they're like, oh, yeah, hang on. This is going to be good. We're going to see a miracle. We're going to see Jesus performing one of these miracles. Let's go with him. Let's follow him. So they set out and there's a whole crowd and that's delaying them. But in the crowd is someone else. And in this crowd is a someone else who's desperate. A desperate woman, a woman who's been uh, bleeding, hemorrhaging uh, in some versions of um, the Bible for this one for 12 years. 12 years she's been having problems with, um, we, we're not certain what it is, it could be the, the menstrual cycle, it could be anything like this, but whatever it was, this 12 years of bleeding has led her to have 12 years of suffering. She would have suffered because it made her a social outcast. Jewish society at the time wanted nothing to do with women who were bleeding. She would have been a social outcast. She would have been isolated from any religious activity. She couldn't have gone to the synagogue in this particular state. They wouldn't let her in. She couldn't have gone into any social gathering. They wouldn't let her in. And she's also suffering because she spent 12 years spending all her money on different doctors. She's been to see as many people as she can find to help her sort this problem out. And she spent all of her money. And one of the things that came up in my, my reading for this is this is something we need to consider. That when we meet people, as when we as Christians meet people who are desperate, we need to understand they've probably been to a lot of doctors as well. Maybe they've been to Dr. Drugs or to doctor entertainment or to doctor pleasure maybe they've searched for their answers elsewhere and they spent years and years and years and then they realize do you know what we don't need that doctor we don't need this doctor we don't need the one that gives me the temporary pleasure we don't need, need the one that gives me the temporary fix like the woman in the crowd we need dr jesus 12 years of doctors she finally finds the one that she needs but because of her state, because of who she is, she doesn't want to stand up and say, Jesus, will you heal me? She has faith. She has a strong faith. And she says that in her mind that she can, if she can just touch him, touch his clothes, she will be healed. So in the crowd, she reaches out and she touches his cloak. And instantly she's healed. Now, this is. This is unusual, very unusual in 
in the New Testament. We do see, I think, it's Peter's shadow and, and Paul's handkerchief later on get involved in, in some healings. But this is very unusual. Of all the healings that Jesus did in the whole of the New Testament, this is the only one in which he was not actively involved. He was not involved in this. He didn't make the decision to do this, this healing. She reached out and she touched him in faith. And a cursory, a glance reading at this passage, looks at what Jesus does next. And you could argue, do you know what? It's a little bit cruel. Because she could happily have gone away. She could have gone away, she's healed. But Jesus wants to know who's touched him. He turns around and says, no, who's touched me? He's felt something, who has touched me? His disciples are like, are you crazy? Have you seen this crowd? Dozens of people have touched you. What are you talking about? What are you on about, Jesus? And Jesus knew something had happened and he wants to know. And he doesn't want to know for embarrassment factors. And I'm going to go into that in just a second. But I want to think, move into um, a slightly different part of, of the characterized, uh, sorry, different characters now. If you look at the crowd for a second, imagine this. I imagine that she wasn't the only one who had an illness or a disability in that crowd. Okay. And all of a sudden, they've just seen this. Someone's touched him and been healed, but they touched him. They would have bumped into him. They weren't healed. They weren't changed. And it's important to notice that there's, there's a huge difference between bumping into Jesus and reaching out in faith. Lots of people bump into Jesus. Lots of people may pop into church every now and then. Lots of people may um, pray occasionally. Lots of people may, but do you know what? This woman, she didn't just bump into him. She reached out in faith. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon which says, It's not every contact with Christ that saves men. It's the arousing of yourself to come near to him. The determinate, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ which saves. So this woman has reached out in faith. She's touched Jesus' um, uh, tass the tassel on the end of his, his clothing. Um, and Mark uses a word which translates as glared. Jesus glared he stared he wants to know and the woman could have gone away but she didn't she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth and then Jesus said go in peace daughter and be healed of your affliction I think it needs to be made clear here that Jesus did do this in public, but he did not do this in public to embarrass her. He did not call her out because she had taken from something from him. First of all, I think he did it because he wanted her to know that she had been healed. You know, she did feel that she'd been healed, but perhaps after a couple of days or a couple of weeks, maybe she would have started to doubt. Maybe you should have gone, well, maybe this is just a temporary thing. Maybe, you know, it stopped for a couple of weeks before, you know, perhaps this is a temporary thing. But Jesus standing her up in the crowd and saying to her, you have been healed. Jesus made it clear to that poor woman that she'd been healed. And likewise, he also does it in public because he wanted the other people in the crowd to know that she's been healed. This is a hidden ailment. It's a hidden disability, a hidden um, affliction. And I imagine that in the first century, if she'd simply gone away and then said to the people, oh, I've been healed, I don't bleed anymore. 
people would have gone, yeah, okay, of course not. Yeah, and the skepticism and the suspicion would have been there. So Jesus makes it public so she knows she's healed, but he also makes it public so that others know she's healed. And Jesus also does it in public because he wants her to know why she was healed. He says in the NIV, daughter, your faith has made you well. It wasn't the touching of his cloak. Jesus is not a magician. His clothing is not magic. And I don't know about you, but there's, I know there's some, there's some, um, Religious people, uh, and particularly in America, I know of, 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 of one, he has this magic jacket and he waves his jacket at people and they fall down at his feet. And if, if, the, if the jacket touches him, they fall. That's not how God works. That's not how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't bless you through a magic piece of cloth. So Jesus tells the woman that she has been healed because of her faith. I also think that he did it so that she would be okay. I don't imagine that Jesus wanted her to think that she had stolen a blessing. She sneaked up behind him, she grabbed his cloth, a blessing's come. She could rest assured that Jesus was okay with it. You haven't stolen anything from me. You could have asked and I would have given it to you, but you took it and that's fine. I still love you. I still say you're forgiven. Your faith has still made you well. It was her faith that got the healing. It was not the fact that she stole something. He also wanted to give her a special blessing. In all of the recorded words of Jesus, this is the only time he ever calls someone daughter. Nowhere else does he give anyone else this title. He never called anyone else daughter. And one commentator wrote, It seemed cruel, but it was really kind. It sent her home with loftier thoughts of him. She would never talk of the wonder of the tassel. She would always talk of the wonder of the Lord. Permitted to walk away without confession, she would have said exultantly, I found the cure. Now the woman cried, I found a friend. And yet, it may have been embarrassing. It may have seemed embarrassing. And sometimes I think God's going to ask us to do things that look embarrassing. In fact, I'm fairly sure he will. But he's not doing it to embarrass us. He doesn't want to embarrass us. He's not an embarrassing dad. Okay? He's not one of those dads he always has a higher purpose and we need as christians to be um careful to make sure we don't prefer avoiding embarrassment than doing god's will if we would rather avoid embarrassment then pride is our god not god so of all those reasons he did it i think there's one more one more reason that he did it Okay, why Jesus asked this woman to, or asked whoever it was, was he wanted to, Jairus to see and be encouraged. Jesus has got one eye on what he's actually supposed to be doing here. He's supposed to be going with Jairus. He's been stopped because of this. And do you know what? He, Jairus has seen this woman healed and that's going to encourage him. It still would have been torture 
for for Jairus because he's gone there, he's sought Jesus out, he's found him, he's begged him, Jesus said yeah, he started off and he stopped. This woman's bleeding, but his daughter is dying. This woman snuck in the crowd. His daughter's dying. He's desperate. And Jesus stopped. And we need to remember that sometimes it might look like God is slow. And God is taking his time. But God works in his own time. While they're on the way, still on the way, Jairus hears that his daughter's dead. And if he was anything like me, or like the vast majority of humans I've ever met, the first thought in his head was, well, why did you stop with her then? If you'd been a little bit quicker, my daughter wouldn't be dead. He must have felt helpless and he must have felt hopeless. <laughs> and what Jesus says to, to Jairus, don't be afraid. He gives him two instructions. One, do not be afraid. And two, only believe. Again, it sounds harsh. It sounds like one of those things. Well, that's not really what you should be saying, is it, Jesus? You should be like, oh, I'm really sorry, all that sort of stuff. But no, Jesus simply says, do not be afraid, only believe. Jesus knows that um, fear and faith really don't mix well together. It's really hard to have faith when you're scared. Jairus has to decide to put away his fear before he could really trust that Jesus is going to heal his daughter. And I know it's difficult, and I can't imagine that Jairus actually did it very well. It doesn't tell you that Jairus did stop worrying. It doesn't tell you that Jairus did only believe. But those are God's instructions. Those are what Jesus wants us to know, that when we're struggling, we need to only believe. Jesus didn't say believe and fear. Jesus didn't say believe and try and work it all out. Jesus said, only believe, just believe, just have faith. When they get there to Jairus's house, the funeral is already started. Um, it was customary in those times to hire mourners. Uh, even the poorest were expected to hire at least two flute players and one professional mourner. The flute players and the mourner were there and the other mourners there to make it look... Um, super somber and super sad there were people whose living was to be professional mourners they would go and they would weep and they would wail Jairus is a rich man he must have had a lot more than two flute players and a mourner there would have been a huge crowd of mourners and when they get there they start to ridicule, ridicule Jesus when Jesus said she's not dead they start to ridicule Jesus and they start to make fun of him they switch from their mourning to ridicule you can see there that they're not proper mourners they're not really upset at this young girl's death they're simply doing their job and jesus wants absolutely nothing to do with them he puts them all outside he takes james he takes john he takes peter he takes jairus and he puts the rest of them outside they did not believe they didn't believe jesus could do it they didn't believe jesus was going to do it and Jesus knows that if he lets them continue, Jairus' faith is going to continue to be chipped away at. And Jairus is going to continue to be um, discouraged. So he goes in and there's the young girl, 12 years old, on the bed. And Jesus reaches out and says to her, Talitha Kumi. Now again here, Mark is clear to translate this. Little girl, get up. 
And I think the reason why he translates it is to stop it becoming a magical magic formula, a magic spell. You know, these are words in, in Aramaic. These are words that would have been spoken at the time. But I think God wants us to know this is not a magic spell. If you find someone who's dead and you go and say to them, Talitha Kumi, they're not going to get up. That's not how you raise the dead. God can raise the dead. Jesus can raise the dead. Of course he can. But you can't. And I can't. And we certainly can't just by reproducing those words that he uses. So Mark is clear. But what's interesting is sometimes when I discuss with my atheist friends, um, you know, uh, who Jesus was, and I quite often say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never said, you know, I am God. And one of the things is, no, perhaps he didn't use those words, but he did certainly display the attributes of God. He displayed the power of God. And this is one of those cases in Romans chapter four, verse 17, it says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Jesus brings life to the dead. Jesus restored life to two women that day. He restored life to the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years and he restored life to the girl who'd been alive for 12 years and was now dead. Jesus is God and Jesus can bring life. And when I thought about, you know, what's the, what's the message from this passage? What is God trying to say to someone who reads this? Someone who's... Um, wants to know more about him i think in first it says we need to be like like the woman when we come to jesus we must fall down before him and tell him the whole truth like she did tell him the whole truth about our sin a good doctor always asks what the problem nowadays you know if you ring up the gp okay you usually have to go through the receptionist and the receptionist will say okay can i tell them what the problem is so you ring the doctor, a doctor the other day I, I, I did this very thing. I rang her and she said, can I ask what it is? So I gave her a few details, not all the details. Um, and I'm fully aware that my doctor, when he rings back, he's going to know roughly what the problem is. But he still starts his conversation with, right, what's up? And it's the same with Jesus. We must tell the whole thing. Don't leave anything out. I don't know about you, but I have to admit to sometimes in the past when I've been to the doctors, I've not really told them everything. Because sometimes I'm thinking, well, hey, that's a little bit embarrassing. Or if I tell him that, he's going to think it's really worse. If I tell her this, you know, maybe I'll end up doing that. Okay. But when we come to Jesus, we have to tell him the whole truth about our sin. Even if it's embarrassing. Even if we don't want to. We must also tell him the whole truth about our suffering. He wants to know where it hurts. Tell him. We must tell the whole truth about all the other doctors and all the other cures that we've tried. Jesus, I've been to this place. I've done this. I've done that. It hasn't worked. I need you. And we must tell the whole truth about our hopes because like any good doctor, Jesus wants to know what he can do for us. In this story, Jairus was about to lose 12 years of sunshine. He'd had his daughter for 12 years. 
and he was about to lose it. The woman was about to lose 12 years of suffering. Jairus was an important man. The woman was an outcast. We don't even know her name. Christians, as we are wont to do, have created a huge number of myths about her. Some people say her name was Berenice. Some say it was Veronica. We don't know this woman's name. We know Jairus, and Jairus will be known for, the, for all of history as the man who was the ruler of the synagogue. Until we get to heaven, we won't know this woman's name. Jairus was rich. The woman was penniless. Jairus came in public and begged Jesus in public. The woman snuck through the crowd and came to him secretly. She was healed in public. Jairus' daughter was healed in secret. Jairus thought that Jesus had to act for his daughter to be healed. She thought she just had to connect with him in some way to be healed. And what this tells us is that, uh, well, sorry, one last thing here. He was, she was healed immediately. Jairus, of course, had to wait as we've discussed. And what this tells us is that when Jesus meets us and when Jesus comes to heal and when Jesus comes to, to help us and to be with us and to, to solve what our problems are, he will do it in his way and he will do it in a personal way. Each one of us will have a personal care plan from Jesus. He will not heal you in the same way as he healed me. He will not heal a certain person in the same way as he healed another person. Jesus meets all of our needs and he meets our needs individually. There is no magic formula. There are no magic words, no magic things. There's nothing that you can do that will make him act in a particular way. Jesus and God will meet our needs individually and at the time of their choosing, in a place of their choosing and in a way of their choosing. They're choosing. That's how Jesus, that's how he works. That's how he always works. To finish, I think there are two, two things to, dis, to, to point out. These two healings tell us, well, tell us one thing and then leave us with a question. And the first thing is, it tells us that Jesus's love crosses all boundaries. It crosses ethnic boundaries. At the start of this chapter, the bit we didn't read, Jesus is there on the other side with the Gentiles. He also crosses gender boundaries. Jesus wasn't supposed to mix with women. He wasn't supposed to be touching women. He wasn't supposed to do any of that. No, no, an unmarried Jewish man should have nothing to do with them. Jesus didn't mind. It also shows he's not afraid to cross religious boundaries. He's just been touched by a woman who was um, bleeding. That should have made, she was unclean. That should have made him unclean. He didn't care. And likewise, he was touching a dead body. The dead body was unclean. He shouldn't have touched the dead body. That dead body made him unclean. But Jesus didn't care. It shows us that the boundaries that we may put in place are not boundaries that Jesus respects. When he wants to act, he will act in a way that crosses those boundaries. And it shows that he will not choose to leave us in the condition that he finds us. He didn't leave the woman bleeding. He didn't leave the young girl dead. He healed the woman. He raised the young girl. And Jesus has the power to alter any of our conditions. And the question to finish with 
is can we do that? As a church, can we cross all those boundaries? Can we really cross those boundaries? Can we alter lives and cross those boundaries? Do we really believe that God's love and grace and healing is for everyone? It's nice to say, but do we believe it? People who are of a different race or a different gender or a different ethnicity or a different sexuality or even people who support a different um, political party. Does it really, do we really cross all boundaries as a church? Will we do that? And will we do that as Christians? We should do. This is what God wants us to do. God's love crosses all boundaries and God's love meets people where they are. And we need to be aware for that. No matter what someone has done, they are eligible for God's love and God's grace and God's forgiveness and God's healing. And we need to remember that we're not God and we're not better than God. As hard as that is, we need to say to ourselves as Christians, this passage in Mark shows me that God wants to heal people who need healing. And this shows me that God wants to change the lives of people whose life has been devastated. And this passage shows me that God wants to bring life to everyone, no matter who they are or where they're from. And I think that's possibly one of the greatest challenges for a Christian. To say, I have to go and be with someone that isn't like me, and I have to go and be with someone that I don't like. So I think for me, that's, that's the key message. There are lots of times when I get angry with someone or when I disagree with someone's actions. And then every so often, God will just remind me with a little nudge and say, well, you know, they're still human. Um, the, uh, the, the children were learning this morning um, about uh, the creation of, of mankind and the, uh, you know, the Imago Dei. We were all created in the image of God. And when God came down to earth, when God came down and was incarnate with us as Jesus, every single one of those people he met, he truly understood that they were created in the image of God. No matter what their gender, their ability, their ethnicity, or even their particular theology and politics. And that's the, that's the thing, that's the hardest thing. And I know it's hard for me and I know it's hard for, for other Christians. But God's wonderful and he will give us the support and he will give us the words to use and he will give us um, the power to do that. Uh, I think I've rambled on too much at the end in there, but that's the end of, of my talk. So back over to you, Nick. Thanks, Derek. Amen to those words. Um, 